6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapters 9 and 10. Well, we are in session 6 of the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, just by way of a quick review, it's of course in Hebrew translated. I put this up front just to remind us that the translations are always have their, their subtleties that we may miss in the, in the translation. The theme of the book, of course, is exemplified not only in the opening verses, the words of the preacher, that's Solomon, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he's going to emphasize that, of course. On the one hand, I think many people misunderstand uh, his, his perceptions. He says, what profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? So his focus, his centroid, his scope, his perspective is really that of our life on the earth with only a glimpse now and then of the fact that there very much is an afterlife. I might mention this verse, equivalent of it, is also at the chapter 12, the closing chapter of the book. The book is called in Hebrew the Koheleth, which means the gather of an assembly or the preacher. And uh, when that's translated into Greek in the Septuagint, it's called Ecclesia, and it's from the Latinization of that that we get our word Ecclesiastes. And uh, it's on the natural man's quest for the chief good. It is an integrated, highly organized treatise. It's not just a random, th- like the book of Proverbs is just a concatenation of Proverbs, but the book of Ecclesiastes is highly organized. It need to understand that to really get his flow of thought. It concludes that all is vanity. But don't think he's pessimistic. He's really more bravely honest than pessimistic. And the key is that you'll notice if you look carefully that he it looks beyond life's ironies that are dwelled upon toward the fact that God is really in control and there will be future restitutions, to put this all in perspective, which implies we won't get our perspective just from our, the horizon that we can see as we go forward. Uh, and, of course, it focuses on the final significance. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. I want to focus this on this because many people have a very myopic view of the book of Ecclesiastes. This is where Solomon is heading, ultimately, as he examines life as he sees it. Now, we're going to be in chapter 9, which could be subtitled, Meeting Your Last Enemy, Death. And this is not the first time that the subject of death has come up in his discourse, nor will it be the last. We saw it in chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, 6, 8, and we'll see it again in 12 and so on. You'll discover that in this chapter, Solomon is going to draw two conclusions. One is that death is unavoidable. That'll be in the first 10 verses. And then life itself is unpredictable in the last nine verses. Can't, whenever I think of death, I'm reminded of Woody Allen's fa- famous crack. He says, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> but if it, each of us, including Woody Allen, will be there when it happens. Because there's no escaping of death And when your time has come. And death is not an accident. It's an appointment. 
That's an appointment. That's what Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed unto men and women to want, but once to die, and after this the judgment. That expression, of course, is intended and focused on a rebuttal to reincarnation. It's interesting how all the Eastern religions and so forth, they all have various versions of reincarnation. That is a pagan idea. It is expressly refuted in the Scripture, especially by Hebrews 9.27. Death is a destiny that nobody but God can cancel or change. Whenever I come across the subject of reincarnation, I find it irresistible to include a poem that uh, was called to my attention some years ago, if you'll bear with me. What is reincarnation? A cowboy asked his friend. It starts, his old pal told him, when your life comes to an end. They comb your hair, they wash your neck, they clean your fingernails, and they put you in a padded box away from life's travails. Now the box in you goes into the hole that's been dug in the ground. Reincarnation starts in when you're planted neath that mound. Them clods don't melt down just like the box and you who is inside. And that is when you begin your transformation ride. And in a while the grass will grow upon your rendered mound, till someday upon that spot a lonely flower is found. And then a horse may wander by and graze upon that flower that once was you and now has become your vegetated bower. Now the flower the horse done eat, along with his other feed, makes bone and muscle and fat and essential to the steed. But there's a part that he can't use, so it just passes through. And there it lies upon the ground, this thing that once was you. And if perchance I should pass by and see this on the ground, I'll stop a while and ponder at this object that I found. And I'll think about reincarnation and life and death and such. But I'll come away concluding why you ain't changed all that much. <laughs> Wallace, <laughs> Wallace McRae. Well, I apologize if that's a strange thing to insert. I couldn't resist including it. But whenever people start talking about reincarnation, I'm always remembered by what, what's called the cowboy poem. But we're going to be talking about this issue of death, in more, obviously in more serious terms. And uh, the only way to be prepared to live is to be prepared to die. Death is a fact of life. And Solomon is going to examine many of the facets of life so that he might really understand God's pattern for satisfied living in the reality of death. Robert E. Lee's famous words were, Let the tent be struck. See, and unless Jesus Christ returns and takes us to heaven in the rapture, we all, each one of us, one day will strike our tent, as it might be expressed in Second Corinthians 5 and so on. And uh, we'll leave the battlefield for a better land, but we've got to be ready. And anyone who treats death lightly may fear death the most. And if we take life seriously, and we should, then we can't take death flippantly. So let's take a look at what the king, who has been dubbed the wisest man that's ever lived, says about these things from his point of view. So it says, For all this I considered in my heart, even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, and to the good and to the clean and to the unclean, and to him that sacrifices, and to him that sacrifices not. 
as is the good, so is the sinner, and he that sweareth, he that sweareth an oath. And so, see, only God knows our future. And he only knows whether it'll bring blessing or sorrow. And up there, in other words, love or hatred, as it talks about in the first verse there. No man knoweth either love or hatred, or in other words, blessings or, or, or sorrow. Now, I should emphasize, Psalm is not presuming that we are somehow uh, uh, passive actors in a cosmic drama with some kind of uh, unchangeable script handed to us by some uncaring director. Not so. And throughout the book, Psalm is going to emphasize our freedom of discernment and decision. Now, only God may know what the, whole, the future holds for us and what will happen tomorrow because of the decisions that we make today. And this is one of those places that if I had the time, I'd be tempted to insert one of my classic uh, digressions on the nature of the time domain. But people who argue about predestination versus free will are people who are arguing from within the constraints of a three-dimensional universe. Or I should say, ignoring this, the fourth dimension called time. Because within our existence, we have free choice. But God is outside our dimensionality of time and happens to know and see ahead what our choices are going to be. To us, that seems like a contradiction. It's either, it's either deterministic or it's uh, indeterminate. No, not so. You, you determine your choices. It's just that God is outside the dimensionality of time. And then verse 2, all things come alike to all. There's one event to the righteous, one of the wicked, and so forth. And all these contrasts. Righteous, wicked, good, uh, you know, clean and unclean, and sacrifice and not sacrifice. So, what Psalm is really pointing out: we have a common destiny on the earth, but we uh, do not share a common destiny after death in eternity. All of us, good and bad, may face death—the reality of death. It's coming, but that doesn't mean that our 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 destinies are identical after we die. And it's for that reason that each of us need to face what, what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy, death. And we need to decide how we're going to deal with that. And uh, Christians who have trusted Christ to save them from sin and death, uh, uh, for them the last enemy has already been defeated. Romans 6, John 11, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, of course, it's the climactic passage and all those things. Unbelievers do not have that confidence and are unprepared to die whether they admit it or not. And so how they how people deal with the reality of death reveals the way they deal with the realities of life. Solomon is going to point out three possible responses that people have to the ever-present reality of death. In verse 3, he'll talk about escape. In verse 4 to 6, endurance. And Verses 7 to 10, enjoyment, escape, endurance, enjoyment. So let's go to verse 3. This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all, yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil and madness in the heart while they are alive, and after that they go to the dead. What's suggested here is that death, or the fear of death, the fact of death, will bring out the best in people or the worst. See, when death comes to a family, it doesn't create problems, it reveals them. You know, many, many uh, ministers and many uh, funeral directors and so forth will point out that there's almost an x-ray power of death and bereavement because it reveals the hearts of people. And when we're facing the death of others, uh, you know, uh, we're confronted with our own death. And many people just can't handle it. 
And it can be one of the most profound opportunities to bear witness to the reality of Jesus Christ. I think that's one of the main themes in my wife's book, Faith in the Night Seasons, is that the uh, pressures of bereavement or other major uh, dark times can be powerful, powerfully used of the Lord for our own spiritual growth and so forth. Well, the next of the three is endurance, interestingly enough. Psalm goes on to say, For him, to him that is joined to all living, there is hope. <laughs> for the living dog is better than a dead lion. That's obviously probably an old uh, a proverb that he, he uh, drew upon. Um, it's sort of an echo of where there's life, there's hope, and so forth. But um, the, uh, that motto, by the way, goes back as far as the 3rd century B.C. It was part of a conversation between two farmers who were featured in a poem by the Greek poet Theocritus. Console yourself, dear Batos, says Corydon. Uh, things may be better tomorrow. While there's life, there's hope. Only the dead have none. That actually goes back to 300 years before Christ as a, as a quote. But uh, for the living know that they shall die. But the dead know not anything, neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. That's from an earthly point of view. See, for a Christian, the Christian has a, a living hope, not a dead hope. Why? Because we worship a living Savior. We don't venerate, we don't venerate someone who's past dead as other, other groups might. We worship a living Savior. The big difference. He's alive and he's conquered death. That's the key point. First Peter 1 and First Timothy 1 both deal with that. And, uh, see, a hope that can be destroyed by death is a dead hope. A false hope. And it must be soon abandoned. You know, what Solomon wrote about the dead can be reversed and applied to the living. The dead do not know what is happening on the earth, but the living know and can respond to it. The dead cannot add to any, anything to their reward or their reputation, but the living can, is the ellipsis to what he's really saying here. See, death is the end of opportunity. And uh, the dead can't relate to people on the earth by loving, hating, envying, but the living can. And he's emphasizing, what he's in effect doing, he's emphasizing the importance of seizing the opportunities where we're alive, rather than blindly hoping for something better in the future, because death will end that kind of a hope. Also their love, their hatred, their envy is now perished, neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. The next theme, he's talked about uh, escape, endurance, then he gets his third uh, response to all this is his favorite theme. That's enjoyment. It's amazing how, how Solomon pushes on that issue. It's one of his most reoccurring themes in chapter 2, 3, 5, 8, and he's going to bring it up again in, the, in, in chapter 11 And his, because his next thing is enjoyment. Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works. Let thy garments be always white. Well, I'll get to the garments in a minute. Uh, his admonition, go thy way, is in effect saying, don't sit around and brood. Get up and live is what he's really saying. Yes, death's coming, but God gives us good gifts to, en- to enjoy, so enjoy them. And, uh, you know, Solomon, of course, like, uh, as you can imagine, sat down to a daily feast. We see that recorded in 1 Kings 4 and elsewhere. But, you know, there is evidence that Solomon himself didn't enjoy it much. You get the impression that he had a lot of meals he did not enjoy. In Proverbs fifteen seventeen, he says, Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. 
That's the NIV version of that. In uh, Proverbs 17, it opens up with better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. <laughs> For Solomon to say something like that suggests at least that he must have experienced some of those. When we get to verse 8, he's going to suggest that we should enjoy every occasion. Let thy garments be always white. Let thy head lack no ointment. See, they wore their white garments as a symbol of joy. They anointed themselves with perfumes and such instead of the usual olive oil when, on special occasions. And when these occasions came, they really made the most of them. So what Solomon is saying, in effect, what he's saying here, always wear white garments and anoint yourself always with special perfume. We must not express our thanksgiving and our joy only when celebrating special events. Let me give you a practical example. There are many people that get gorgeous silver settings as a wedding gift. And then you put them away and use them, what, five or six times in your lifetime? Do they ever wear out? Hardly. Why not use your best silver every day? Maybe not literally, but that's the spirit of what Solomon's saying. Uh, if you want to put it in the Latin, carpe diem. Seize the day. Every day is an opportunity. And it's strange that he would come to that focus by emphasizing that death is certain. So we've got so many days, make the most of them, in effect. You know, Paul said the same thing. He said, uh, rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. Solomon continues, live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity which he hath given thee under the sun, all the days of thy vanity, for that is thy portion in this life and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might, for there is no work nor device nor knowledge nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. In other words, make the most of the days you have is really what he's saying. You know, he's not saying for us to join the fast track or the jet set and uh, start looking for exotic uh, pleasures in faraway places. Instead, he's going to list, uh, he's already listed some of the common experience of life. Happy home, leisurely meals in verse 7. Joyful family celebrations in verse 8. A faithful, loving marriage in verse 9. And of course, hard work. You can enjoy hard work in verse 10. You know, this is a real contrast to the conventional wisdom in our society for happiness. You know, fast food and a full schedule. The addictive pursuit of anything new and the so-called live-in marriages that characterize our culture and shortcuts to help you avoid work and still get rich quick. This is just the opposite formula that Solomon lays out for us for real happiness. You know, it's interesting, though, if you look, listen carefully in our society, there are voices calling us back to the old traditions. There are people that are beginning to recognize that there was a value in the traditional walks of life. There's a, people are recognizing there, there is an emptiness in living on substitutes. They want more, something more substantial than the right labels in their clothes or the right names to drop in the right places and so forth. It's sort of like the younger brother in the, in the famous uh, story of the prodigal son where he, uh, he finally discovers that everything that was really important was back home with his father. And the other, the other thought that's obviously emerges here is to really enjoy your work. Boy, if you're, if you're enjoying your work, you're a happy person. If you're doing work that you don't enjoy, that can be a, a, heavy, a heavy thing on your back. And uh, you know, look, people that really enjoy their work have an incredible blessing. You know, the Jewish people looked upon work not as a curse, but as a stewardship from God. 
And there's even an expression that uh, you know, work at home is a kind of prayer. Working on your home or plowing your own field is a kind of prayer. It's the expression they use. Every rabbi learned a trade. That was one of the requirements. He had to learn a trade. Now, Paul was a tent maker, example. And he says, he reminds them that he does not work and, or, and teaches son to work, uh, teaches him to steal. That's an old rabbinical prayer. And Paul wrote, if, you, if, if any would not work, neither should he eat. Second Thessalonians 3. Or do it all with all, with all your might is the way the NASB deals with this. And also Paul in Colossians 3.17 says, Whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. So all the things that we find enjoyment in will not be in the grave. Show the realm of the dead. So make the most opportunities now. It's sort of the flavor of what Solomon is suggesting here. Now one day our works will be judged, and we'll want to receive a reward uh, for His glory. Now, this, that, the first ten verses are the, on this death theme, if you will, using that as his anvil for his thoughts. But the next, the rest of this chapter emphasizes that life is unpredictable. How many have noticed that? You notice that life is unpredictable? Huh? Okay. Psalm says, I returned and I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor riches to the men of understanding, nor yet favored to men of skill, but time and chance happens to them all. See, our abilities are no guarantee of success. You can't, as they say, you can't assure success. You can only endeavor to deserve it. Now, it's generally true, of course, the fastest runner, you know, runners win the races, the strongest soldiers do win the battles and so forth. But it's a general rule. It's not, it's not a certainty. These same gifted people can fail miserably because their factors get out of their control. In fact, you know, there have been studies of, of successful executives, and you'll find people heading companies that aren't necessarily the brightest, best educated, what have you. The only common thread that they found among the success, successful ones is perseverance. Perseverance. A successful person does, of course, know how to make the most of time and procedure, but only the Lord can control time and chance, as expressed here. Proverbs 16.33 the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. The lot is in the lap of the Lord, in other words. You know, it's interesting. There are two concepts in mathematics that you cannot find in the physical universe. One of them is infinity. We can define it. We know what it is mathematically. We can't find it in physical things. The, if you look at the, in the large scale, the, the great discovery of 20th century science is that the universe is finite. It's not infinite. And that's what led to the Big Bang, the realization that it, then it, that's, that must have had a beginning. It's, not, it's finite. And at the microcosm, on the on small side of things, you think things could get infinitely small. They've discovered that's not true. You can't get a length that's less than 10 to the 30, minus 33 centimeters. You can't find a unit of time smaller than 10 to the minus 43 seconds. Because they discover that length, mass, energy, time, all these things are quantized. They're made up of individual units. They're digitized or quantized. That's what, that's what they mean by the field of quantum physics. It's a study of those things. It's a real shocker. We're in a simulation, so to speak, that is bounded digitally at the smallest end at the biggest end. It's finite. And uh, that's disturbing. And the more you study that, the more disturbing it is. One of the early quantum physicists committed suicide because he could, he understood the implications of that and he couldn't handle it. 
if you've seen the movie, The Thirteenth Floor, in which the plot depends on being in a virtual reality in, in some surprising ways. It's a very, very provocative uh, piece of work. Well, there's another concept in mathematics besides infinity that we can't find in the physical universe. That's randomness. We speak of randomness, something random chance, and we construct mathematical models that are useful in that they're what they're, they're technically called pseudo-random numbers and uh, such. That's what led to the field, a new field of mathematics called theory of chaos. But they've discovered even even the concept of randomness is elusive in, in the physical universe. Now, you know, Solomon already affirmed that God has a time for everything. Remember chapter 3, a time for this and a time for that and so on. A purpose to be fulfilled in that time and so on. The assurance from chapter 8 that something beautiful will come out of that at the end. But Christians obviously do not depend on luck or chance for a lot of other reasons. Our confidence is in the providence of God. And uh, you see, a, a true Christian does not carry around a rabbit's foot or a lucky charm of some kind or has lucky days or lucky numbers. Every day is holy to the Lord. So, Okay, let's go to verse 12. For man also knoweth not his time as the fishes that are taken in an evil net or as the birds that are caught in the snare. So are the sons of men snared in an evil time when it falleth suddenly upon them. In other words, who knows when trouble will fall, come on the scene. And wasn't it Bobby Burns that said, uh, the best laid plans of mice and men gang after the glay? I think I got that right. I forgot, meant to look that up before I made my notes here. So when you least expect it, the fish are, fish are caught or birds are caught, whatever, men too are snared. And, uh, and that's one reason that in chapter 11, that'll be the next time, Solomon is going to emphasize diversification in your investments because you don't know what a day brings forth. He's very strong on diversification. We'll talk a lot about that and its implications in our in our subsequent session. And that's also this is also why we should take very very much to heart uh, James's admonitions against boasting in James chapter four. You've been listening to sixty six forty, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your prayerful continued support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.